my friend, my so-called friend. Loved you like a son, but what did you do to me? Threw me to the wolves. Uh, but now, my friend, you're what, my friend? You're nothing to me now. Nothing! Now you're gonna go back where you come from. You're going back to the swamp where your ancestors came from. Uh, you're born alone, you live alone, and you croak alone. All right, this is great. So for everybody listening, this has been like a, a seven, eight-year journey to uh, get a, an interview with uh, the great Tony Buba. I, um, since, my, since my college years, I'm talking about the very late 90s. Um, and side note, I, I had the chance years ago to tell this to Tony's face, so this is something that I've always been uh, proud of. But when I was in college, you know, his films weren't the easiest to find, especially, you know, I was in college in the South, but... Early on in the internet, I used to read about uh, his work, um, and he would always be mentioned to side guys like Werner Herzog, Errol Morris. Um, Werner Herzog in particular, um, for those of you listening who are familiar with Tony Buba, there's this you know famous quote or excerpt that you know Tony Buba is one of Werner Herzog's favorite filmmakers. So just that endorsement alone over the years, I had been trying to track down his work, and then you know over the years, I was able to see. Um, some of his stuff, and then in 2015, Bam did this really awesome um, series on independent films from the 80s, and I remember Lightning Over Braddock was one of the films in that series, and I made a point to to see it over everything else, you know, in the series, because that was one of the main films that had kind of evaded me. Um, I saw it, he was there at the Q&A, I didn't know he would be there, and then the Q&A slowly morphed into just me and him talking to each other. I kind of took it over. But, um, and then I, I went home the next day, posted my thoughts on Lightning Over Braddock. I sent it to him. He was kind enough to send me all of his movies. So I've seen everything he's done, you know, up, 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 up until recent. I can say he's one of my favorite filmmakers. And yeah, I'm great to be able to talk to, talk to you and have my listeners hear this. This is great. Tony, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Don't know quite yeah. what to say after that introduction. Uh, You're a little no. humbled here. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah. You, you, caught, you had the same reaction. when. Um, so for those of you listening, years ago, he invited me out to this uh, cool event at uh, MoMA, and then afterwards we kind of hung out, and like I said, I told him this, and he, he had the same exact reaction. He, he's, he's a very humble, he's a nice guy, but um, are you, is it is it over the top? To, to say that you are one of or the unofficial mayor of uh, of Braddock is that a well, uh, um... I, actually I live in Braddock Hills right now so, okay so I'm it's one mile away it's like uh-huh. <laughs> I just moved up like the old Jefferson song fair but, enough uh, yeah actually I'm living on I mean my family uh, uh, when they came from Italy they uh, moved to Braddock uh, but on my dad's side they lived in Braddock Hills and I'm actually living on the property that was my grandfather so my first 50 some years of my life i lived in my grandmother's house wow. now i'm living on my grandfather's property i haven't moved too far but uh, yeah i don't know about being the unofficial mayor of braddock i i, I know a lot of people <laughs> i yeah I, I think he's being humble again i mean i've had people on twitter reach out to like they found the the piece that i wrote on lightning over braddock yeah. years ago and were just like asking one one guy actually asked how to get in contact with you, and I was like, I don't know him that well, so I'm not going to do that. But it just seems like whenever, outside of just film, and you know, we'll get into film later, but it seems like just Braddock in general, 
your name pops up a bit. It seems like you're more than just, hey, I'm a filmmaker. You 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 seem like a staple in that community. Is that yeah yeah you know? I, that, yeah I am a staple in the community. I mean I've been involved ever since I uh, returned from college when I when I finished my graduate degree and it came back in '76 and I. You know, I was I was doing films when I was a grad student about Braddock, and mm-hmm. I mean, one of the questions that was asked in my to defend my thesis was that did I think I could ever make a film that wasn't set in Braddock? And I told the uh, teachers, I said, "Well, I don't think I have to." So that was been sort of wow. the career. But I've been really I was really inspired by people from Apple Shop too, of uh, of what they did in uh, in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and returning back to their community and and documenting it. Right. Well, see, that's okay. So that's interesting. I'm glad you said that because that actually it ties into the next thing I wanted to ask you where it was, was your love of to become a filmmaker? Was it, hey, I love films. And then after that, I'm going to focus on Braddock. Or was it that you just love Braddock so much that that kind of fueled your, you know, delve into filmmaking to bring attention back to Braddock? Did did that make any sense? It's all uh, I mean, it's really serendipity. I mean, my I mean, I liked film and it, it, it watch it, but I never thought of, uh, you know, that would be uh, my career. Then mm-hmm. uh, then I didn't start college until I was older. I was like 24. Mm-hmm. And I w- uh, went to Edinburgh and, and got a work-study job at the campus TV station. Wow. And that really, it, it, you know, I mean, this is the thing about, you know, uh, talking about people don't need to go to college today, you know, go trades. I mean, it, if I... I, I was already a, a plumber's assistant, you know, working at this uh, place. I, I know I, I done, did that kind of work, but but going to college really just really turned my whole life around. And that work study job was just was it. I got there and I and I and because I was older, the the people teaching and, and working there they were only you know the professors were only around twenty eight or twenty nine. They were all young. Wow, young faculty because uh, this you know was, a lot of baby boomers were going to school expanded brought in all these uh, younger people and I got to work uh, with them and they were comfortable because I was older. Yeah. And so it actually, uh, so I got that job and met a, a, a professor, David Weinkoff, who uh, took me under his wing and taught me how to do audio and run Inagra. And I worked with him for like the three or four years while I was in school. And he's the one that's, uh, that pushed me into, uh, into making uh, films. And then I got interested. I was involved in a lot of political action even though I was already done with the service, I was involved in a lot of the anti-war demonstrations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and it got me interested. And I watched, you know, so I saw through the film society, you know, the films of Boonwell, and that, those just really blew me away. And then, then, then the, and then the immediacy of 16 millimeter at that time, with the, especially with the Third World Newsreel and the, the films they were doing on the, on the Black Panther Party. And so I... It, it was uh, so I just got interested in, in in film for political reasons. I hadn't at that time. There was no thought of like making all the films about Braddock. And, and once again, I you know, went off to grad school at a high university. And the person I was living with at the time, we had split up, and uh, so I was a little depressed. So I ended up going home a good bit. And that and it's one of these things where you know when you don't see people for a long time or and especially now not being spending a lot of time in Braddock, how much the community aged in like that mm. five or six years that I was gone. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, 
yeah, and I was, uh, you know, and honestly, I was stuck for make a film, a couple short films. I just, and I got home one weekend. My mother said, "Here, uh, uh, we sold the shoemaker shop. It's going to close down." It was like my grandfather died a while back, but there was a, 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 a Mr. Thompson that was using uh, the place, and he retired. And mm-hmm. so that's when I went up and did my first short film on uh, on Braddock, and then. Like I said, I was depressed. I was coming home, and J. Rowe was having a grand opening of a used furniture store, and that this was going to turn the community around. And I thought, right. well, this is really Boonwellish. <laughs> so hmm. I, I, I ended up, you know, doing a short film on that. Then it just continued after that. Edinburgh, you know, is a state school, which is, mm-hmm. of course, have now become terribly underfunded and mm-hmm. denying opportunities to other people like me because the other. Another famous graduate of Edinburgh was Latoya Ruby Fraser. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So she, yeah, she's also from Braddock originally. And oh wow! Okay. Oh, yeah, Latoya. Yeah, she, oh. she 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 lived like seven blocks down the street from me. I had no idea. You know, we're like two generations apart in age, so I had no idea uh, wow. who, who she was. But yeah, we ended up becoming friends. Uh, uh, but so uh, yeah, so so at Edinburgh was like you know it was almost all first generation people going to college and they mm. all came from mill towns like Braddock. So there was no oh, problem. Well, fair uh, enough. What was interesting as I started making these films is that, you know, at, at that time, most people were from a fairly solid middle-class background who were doing film production. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of, actually a lot of trust fund babies and that kind of, and so their films focused on different issues in, in they really didn't have a lot of working people in the films. If they did, it was always a, a political person, you know, that, that they would interview. So when I s- started making mine, it was actually, it was a little difficult because people didn't understand working class humor and how, mm. it, and how it bordered. And they couldn't, like I did the film on J-Roy, they couldn't figure, am I making fun of this person, not making fun, and didn't understand sometimes the, uh, you know, uh, the, the dialogue that goes in between uh, uh, two people that live in, in the same community and that sort of teasing and jousting back and forth that takes place. Uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, so I was going to get to that later, but I'll just bring it up now. Yeah, like, were there was there ever... It seems like now, obviously, and for quite some time, the, the community has always kind of had your back. But yeah, so early on... Because for those of you listening who aren't familiar with, like, all of his films... You know, a lot of times, I think it's easy to just, hey, Tony Buba, documentary filmmaker. But not exactly. Sometimes your films do like a narrative thing. Like you kind of play with the form sometimes. You play with storytelling, documentary. So were there ever times early on where, yeah, I guess people didn't know what you were doing. Was that a struggle? And did you sometimes have to be like, no, listen, I'm from here. I'm not trying to make fun. This is just my way of filmmaking, did you? Yeah, especially, uh, well, the one that... that uh, drew the most controversy was Sweet Sal. Yeah, that, that's that, what I was getting that, to. Because yeah. I showed this at one uh, at a, a University Film Association conference, and half the room liked it and half the room hated it right. because they didn't know why make a film about this person. I mean, there's sort of this, you know, the, the, the sort of the Flaherty tradition, you know, of you make a film and the per- person has to go through a struggle and comes out you know, stronger at the end, you know, this, yeah. this sort of growth that takes place. Well, you know, really, most of the people we know through our lives, you know, very few of them have really grown. I mean, it's, mm. they, were, when you knew, they were the same people you knew when they were 20, they're the same people at 40. Uh, sure. And, uh, yeah, so Sal, so they didn't quite know why I, 
you know, make wanted to make this film on sale. And I thought it was I thought it was interesting in the sense that the same people they would go and pay a hundred at that time maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars a ticket to see uh, uh something that Mamet Mamet would have written, you know, uh mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of the play now with uh where the where they're going to rob the store and they're all talking in there and I can't think I can't think of the title of the oh I can't think of it either oh, yeah it's huh. yeah Sorry. so yeah so that uh, yeah so they would pay that but that was almost like being twice or three times removed from the actual person but to see someone with Sal's persona up on the screen it was bothersome even though uh, I mean I think Shirley Clark had done it earlier. But they, oh, you mean like Portrait of Jason? Or Jason or yeah, it was yeah, Portrait yeah. of Jason. Yeah, yeah. but um, uh, yeah, but Sal. Was, and, and the thing that's fascinating to me with Sal is that how he still holds a screen today. I mean, yeah. I, this is like forty some years ago, fifty, and I go, I show lightning over Braddock, and people still are amazed by Sal. Well, it's funny, you know, not not to when you think about. I, I don't know how up you are on like current stuff but like i don't know if you're familiar with a guy like uh nathan fielder no i yeah. don't know yeah. okay yeah you, you sh- i i think I, I i wouldn't be surprised if he was maybe influenced by someone who was influenced by you without realizing who you are but he's one of those guys too who does like kind of a hybrid documentary slash some people are in on it some people are not but it's also not exploitive. You, you, you know what I mean? I think right, there's, right. This, yeah, th- there's this type of humor where, you know, it's just, it's somewhat surreal, but also based in realism. Um, oh, if, if, if I, I definitely think he has a, he had a show called um, Nathan for you. It was on Comedy Central for three seasons, four seasons actually. And then he now has a, um, a show on HBO called The Rehearsal, which is really like, I think you would, di- I mean, you've mentioned Budenwell's name twice and you are who you are. I mean, I think, I honestly think his show, uh, the rehearsal, which got renewed for a second season, it really is kind of like a mixture of Tony Buba and Bunuel. <laughs> if, if I could, I, I really think you 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 would yeah, dig I'll have it. To, I'll, yeah, I'll have to watch that. It's, uh... Yeah, or a guy like John Wilson. Are you familiar with with his? No. Uh, yeah, he's he's another. Well, actually, his show How to with John Wilson, which is also on HBO, produced by Nathan Fielder. He's another guy who um, we had John Wilson um, on another podcast that I host, and your name came up um, on that. So that's just kind of another thing where it's like he shoots a lot of the people in his in his Brooklyn community, and there's some humor behind it, but he's not making fun of anyone. Like like a common a recurring character on his well character, real person on his show is his landlord. She's this kind of eighty something year old old lady, and there's some funny stuff around her. But he's never taking advantage of her. He's never exploiting her. Yeah, so, it's it, you know. yeah, it's 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 a it's 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 a fine line. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, but it's really, uh, you know, most of us wouldn't be able to survive the conditions we live in if it wasn't for our humor. I mean, sure. That's, yeah, I mean that's. And I wonder if if especially places like like you know, mill towns, factory towns, I, like you had mentioned earlier, like the the humor from places like that are a little different, but it seems like, is that something that to some degree keeps a town like Braddock or whether it's Pittsburgh, right, you know, wherever going is, yeah. is that kind of humor and just not taking yourself too seriously? Seriously, Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. I, I, I believe it does. I mean, and I've also sort of been interested in, you know, people though, like <laughs> I know for a while there at one festival, I think, I don't know if there was money for funding uh, work on people with disabilities Mm-hmm. But like every film had somebody with 
a disability and of course they ended up you know conquering it being a you know a musician being this being that right and that's why i decided to do this film on gary peabody who had was washing films for it was washing uh, the windows for his mother and the windows gave way and he fell like six stories and yeah lost you know both of his legs but you know he just ended up surviving and and and, and working and people treated him uh, you know as if he didn't have any uh disability and and teased him and every everything else and it was to me it was just sort of you know not everybody you don't have to film everybody who who ends up having a success story at the end of their life and overcame uh you know all these problems it doesn't have to be structured like those old uh rock band movies that was on vhs one remember with the, with the yeah. stories <laughs> they struggled they became successful did drugs fell apart and got back together got and back together it. again yeah. you know it's it, it's funny i had it this is kind of related to what we're talking about although a little bit of a side note there was recently there was a movie uh it was pretty popular it was about it was a uh on emmett till uh-huh. um I, I didn't see it because it's also just one of the things where i i do know i know the story but the tone of the movie in the trailer it was one of the centerpieces at the new york film festival was it was very triumphant and you know i was mentioning it to a few people it was just like I don't know if that story is as triumphant as the trailer made it out to be. The story of, of Emmett Till, it was, I mean, this young boy was killed. The woman later in life said that she lied to begin. So it's almost like, you know, I mean, he didn't die for nothing because essentially, I'm generalizing, the civil rights movement started and, and a lot of things happened off of his death. But at the same time, it's kind of like everyone involved in that murder, relatively nothing happened. So it, it's, yeah, it, it's kind of like that. Like, not every story does need to have that overcome and just because you don't overcome also doesn't mean you don't live a long life and enjoy right. life either there's, there's, there's just exactly some setbacks. Right. yeah there's yeah, some there's, setbacks yeah, that happen yeah you know yeah i mean it's yeah, not everything is, is is your life isn't structured like a sundance documentary yeah exactly exactly wow that's funny yeah what are you how many what's your experience with sundance and now that you brought that up I'm, i've always been curious what that's well, like well it's I was, I was there twice i was there with lightning over braddock sure and, and I, and it, you know, that was the first, the first time being there, and, and it was like my roommates were amazing. I roomed with uh, Steve Soderbergh. He was there with Sex wow. Lies and Videotape, and I, and I also roomed with Christine Choi. Wow. Know, who killed Vincent Chan? And Christine Choi, uh, we had known each other earlier. We were sort of hitting the same festival circuit at that time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I roomed with the uh, the two of them, and, and it was it was for funny because. Uh, Soderbergh was really young, and his mother would call almost every day, and sometimes huh. he wouldn't be there. And, and I pick up the phone once, and and I, I said, she says, "How's Steve doing? Oh, he's doing good." And I said, "He dresses warmly when he goes out." <laughs> then, we, then we ended up talking, and uh, and she says, well, "Where are you from?" I said, "I'm from Pittsburgh." And mm-hmm. she says, "Oh, I used to live in Pittsburgh." She says, "My husband and I uh, lived in the you know, here there." She says, "And I know." She says, where are you from in Pittsburgh? I says, from Braddock. She says, oh, Braddock. She says, I know people from Braddock. My husband had back problems, and there was this person named Dave Spear who worked for J. Roy. <laughs> they used to cure him with crystals. And so yeah. she so she actually knew J. Roy, which <laughs> wow. was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. Then the second time there at Sundance was, uh, I was there with uh, Struggles in Steel with uh, Ray Henderson. Uh, sure, another great, for those of you listening, another great film, by the way. But Yeah, anyway. and, and, and Struggles, and Struggles was, you think, because 
I was there, and we had Ray Henderson there, and, and Jan was with me. So it was, you know, we're from Braddock. My brother was there. He had mm-hmm. just finished editing Looking for Richard, the, uh, the, the documentary uh, that Pacino made on in playing mm-hmm. Richard III. So my brother and I were, you know, and Ray were both at some dance. So, so I still like to say probably that year, we had uh, the greatest representation ever from one community at the Sundance sure. Film Festival. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. I, I have to go back, though, because you were there with... So, so were you the year... Was that the year that uh, Chameleon, Chameleon Street played? No, I was I mean, it was a long time ago. Because I, yeah, I think... No, cause I, think I, don't, I don't know if... That was the year... I, know, I think Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer got the... Uh, oh, so maybe that was 88. Maybe that was like a year before. Because I remember... Before, yeah. Okay, I, I always get because I know Sex Lies came out in '89. Yeah, Lightning Over Braddock was '89, I think. So yeah, yeah. I guess it would have been the year before. Okay, okay. I'm trying to because I when I interview filmmakers, I learn all these cool. St- I just learned a cool one now that you'd room with Steven Soderbergh, but then I learned that um, N- Nina Menkez and Julie Dash met each other in line because the, both their films played in '91 at Sundance, and from that point on, for the last 30 years, that they became friends. So. I always love that kind of. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the at the one where we were there in uh, in '97, you know, so I got to meet Al Pacino through my brother, and so did yeah. Ray. But also, um, uh, Joe Andrus was there with a short film, and mm-hmm. Joe Andrus uh, is, is she passed. She's married to Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Steve, so Steve Buscemi was there. Joe and I got and and she introduced me to Stanley Tucci. He was there with the uh, mm. the big night that year. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, man, that's awesome. So, going back to Braddock, because, I mean, this is probably going to come up quite a bit and already has, but another thing that stood out to me in terms of people from Braddock, their sense of humor and whatnot, and going back to, you know, like your first film with Sal, with Sal this protectiveness is one thing you brought up at the Q&A when I first met you at BAM was films like, say, Out of the Furnace or just when people use kind of these places as, like, backdrops for these big Hollywood films. Um, can you go in a bit more detail about that? Was there kind of like, I don't know, is, is resentment the word? Is is being protective the word? When a film like that is set in Braddock, do people just kind of show up? They're done with the movie, and it's over, they leave kind, kind of thing? Is that... Uh... I, I just feel like a lot of the film, I mean, like for Out of the... Uh, well, there's a great book called Out of This Furnace, which mm-hmm. was written by... Uh, Bell and it covers three generations of a, a Slovak family in Braddock, mm-hmm. but then, then they used almost used the same title to make right, a, right. a movie with with Christian Bale, and to me it was a film with a, a A-list actors but a B-script. I mean, mm. I, I, one of the things that bothered me, I mean, the person was a, a steel worker, and and it's almost like he was living in poverty. I mean, right. if you're if you're a steel worker today, you're making at least sixty, seventy thousand a year. Right. You're not. Yeah. I the portrayal, uh, the portrayal of the working people always bother me in the, in in those in those uh, films. Yeah. I mean, in most movies, I think it's always. I mean, the, the 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 term that's kind of caught on in the last few decades is like poverty porn. Right. Right. You know, and it's always a funny reverse where when a movie takes place in New York, even today, a movie takes place in like. New York City or LA and someone works at like a coffee shop and you see their apartment and it's just like huge yeah, they, you know yeah, three yeah, bedroom kind of it, it, this is something that my mother-in-law always notes because she watches a lot of the Hallmark Channel movies and she's like if they work at a bakery how can they afford this four bedroom home in Los Angeles or, or, in, or in Brooklyn New York but so no, it's just yeah yeah they, so they do the difference with here yeah if you have a 
a, a decent paying job, you know, with a strong union, and, yeah. but they make you act like you're living in poverty, where you, yeah. you, you where you could actually, in, in this area, afford a, a, a three-bedroom house. I mean, it's yeah. like... Yeah, that's... And, too, it's... Do people... I, I'm not sure if you even know this, but when a Hollywood film such as Out of the Furnace comes to Braddock, do you think it's because they're all the names that you've mentioned so far, all the projects associated with Braddock? Do they is that the reason why they come there, or is it just like, hey, we need a place that looks like this, so let let's just shoot here? No, I mean, the real reason they come is because of the uh, uh, the tax incentives ah, that makes the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania gives. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for those tax incentives, they'd be they'd be shooting somewhere else and and saying how real this other community was. I mean, that's that's it. There's nothing particular i mean if, yeah. if if west virginia gave uh larger taxes sometimes they'd be there and they would just change the script around a little bit and maybe maybe a coal miner or if you sure. go to you know if an old textile worker or something whatever it's really the tax incentives that that, that bring the people here and yeah. it's yeah and they all end up saying how much they love the area after et cetera, et cetera, when it's all done but and how they return but would they return if there's no tax incentive right now, going back to, you, you had mentioned the greater Pittsburgh area, and there's obviously is, I think, is forever going to be associated with a guy like George Romero, who you had a relationship with, um, along with someone who you actually, you, you had mentioned him early, um, Gary Peabody as well. What, what was that relationship like? Because George Romero originally is from New York, but obviously one of the most famous, most influential films in the world, Night of the Living Dead, was shot in that area and then it seems like from that point on he was always associated with Pittsburgh and the greater Pitt- Pittsburgh area yeah yeah George uh, George I got to, I got to know when I was in grad school like in around 75 uh, at, at that time talking speaking of tax shelters there was a tax deal where and you, you know, this is where a lot of the explosion was in uh, uh, with films in the 70s mm-hmm. if you were if you're doing like a high-risk business you were able to do, get like a five-to-one tax write-off on the investment. Hmm. So there was uh, films that were being made where, you know, you, in that, that time, uh, like chiropractors or doctors, the, the tax rate was much higher. So if they would invest 5000 into your project, over a five-year period, they could write $25,000 off. Wow. So there <laughs> was these investing yeah. So So George had, uh, had got this tax deal for a sports series called The Winners. Mm-hmm. And it had to be done by 76. So um, he hired my brother was in Pittsburgh. So he hired my brother's company to uh, to work on some of them because they needed to get it done. Then my brother called me up. So I dropped out of school for uh, like six months, seven months to come and work on this series where I did assistant editing work and uh, also assistant camera. So we ended up, you know, ended up filming like. Rocky Blyer and Terry Bradshaw and, uh, oh, cool. and other sports huh. other sports figures and so that's how I got to meet Georges through that so then um, what happened in 76 is I went down I finished up my degree and, and uh, George was working on uh, a couple projects one was a, a PR film for Chatham College mm-hmm. and the other was inserts for an Italian horror film called Spasmo George, oh, wow. they needed uh, more sex and violence for the uh, American uh, uh, version of it, mm-hmm. and so they hired George to shoot these uh, uh, these inserts. And you know, this the whole thing is sort of life is you know, it's, 
it just it's just as strange sometimes. Okay, George's camera person, Mike Gornick, he had gotten married, so he was on his honeymoon when George, when George had to do this. The other person, Nick Mastandria, who's gone on to be an amazing first AD and has directed a film, uh, he had broken his arm playing frisbee, <laughs> so George mm-hmm. needed someone to help him out. So he called me, and I ended up you know doing assistant camera and work and audio and those two projects and we became pretty close working on it and and that's when he he saw all my uh braddock films and that's Mm -hmm. when he decided to set martin and braddock right and so yeah so we ended up so i ended up doing audio on on martin and have a bit part in it and and, a lot of people in the community are in it and that's when i also started getting the idea of you know always interested in blending documentary and fiction but now i started thinking what if i get a lot of people that are in my documentary films then to have bit parts in George's films. So you'll see J. Roy, you'll see other people that I made documentaries on also then be in narratives just trying to really uh you know blend the whole the whole sure. process. But yeah that's how yeah so George yeah so George uh, then I ended up you know working on did the audio on Dawn of the Dead and had the bit part where I get my arm torn off in a blood pressure machine, right. which, which is actually, I mean, that little <laughs> screen time I had is turned to thing. I just, <laughs> at Thanksgiving time, I just got back from England. They had a weekend of the Dead Festival in Manchester, and they flew me over to, to talk about the film. <laughs> See, okay, so, and I wanted to get into, yeah, all right, so, that, so that's another thing, too. It, it's funny, um, is there a whole separate group of folks that kind of just know you as, like, sombrero man you exactly. know what i mean from yeah, you know because yeah, not a lot of people because all all those and 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 in no way am i downplaying the fact that you were a part of the filmography of george romero you know it's so great but not but not everyone even myself sometimes i love films i don't know who did sound on this or right. who did you know grip on this so it's one of those things where yeah folks might know who tony booba is but then they don't know maybe what you look like and then in a quick scene in a George Romero film. So is it one of those things where people are just like, oh, you're in the world of George Romero. You're, you're that, because, because, you know, in cult films, even someone who has like a small role. Right. Has this like crazy fan base. And then like, has there ever been a case where you just like, I directed this movie or it's like, I've been a filmmaker for decades and people are just like, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, 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 that does happen. But yeah. I mean, that, that happened more before, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, before the internet actually uh, right. took over, because wow. now, because now they, you can't. I mean, I I just had a, a, a Romero fan, you know, buy the whole Kino Lorber set of my films, and they sent me messages how much they liked them and, and, and that kind of thing. So the yeah, it does branch out. But you know, when you sit at the table, you do have some of your own projects to sell. But exactly, you know, these are really uh, 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 fans. I mean, it's, to me, it's it's so fascinating that these festivals like this weekend of the dead the people they were probably only three or four years old when dawn of the dead came out i mean exactly and, and, yeah. and it's you know and it's gone this time yeah it's uh yeah it's yeah it is uh fascinating because i was there and it, at that time too at that period in the 70s in pittsburgh there was just an amazing amount of energy around film mm-hmm. uh you had the pittsburgh filmmakers which you know people doing experimental work and doing uh, uh, you know, short docs and Super 8. Then you had WQED was doing more traditional productions and you had George, but there, there was such a talented group of people here yeah. that, you know, you figure, the person that did Enlightening Over Braddock that did the Archway set where J. Roy sings of it, 
under is, is Jan Pascal, who's gone on to win an Academy Award. Yeah. For Mac, I mean, so you had and John Harrison and other people that were in George's films that worked on him, you know, have gone on to incredible careers afterwards. It was just a, it was just, it was just a, one of those moments, you know. It's almost like when you go to college and all of a sudden, you have this great group of people you're surrounded with, you know. And there's like a, a magic takes place, and that's what happened in Pittsburgh in the seventies. Yeah, there's always these kind of yeah. There's these lightning in a bottle people. Like yeah. I, I think it was I think at, at AFI. Who was it? It was David Lynch, Terrence Malick, Jack Fisk were all there at the same time. Like, they're, they're, yeah, there's these little like random kind of like people who are, you know, are like the the, the Coens and Sam Raimi and Francis Dorman all kind of came up together. So, yeah, it seems like Braddock had its own, you know, yeah, little Brad scene Pittsburgh, like that yeah, as really well. Had, yeah, really had this this moment when there were just, uh, you know, just a lot of uh, amazing people working in, in production and everybody yeah. helping each other out. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I have to go back to what you were saying about Dawn of the Dead and people who love it who were little kids when it came out. I wasn't even born when Dawn of the Dead just came out. I am because I think it was seventy seven, seventy eight. Yeah, um, I was born in eighty one. So, um, speaking of, and it's funny. Speaking of DMs, you know, it's funny because my uh, my good friends. There's, there's another film site that I write for called The Pink Smoke, and on Twitter they started this funny little thread about like director cameos in other directors' films. Um, so I, I gave my little entry and I was like Tony Buba in you know Dawn of the Dead and then I got a couple of folks DMing me and they were just like holy sh- is that Tony Buba I was like yeah yeah he that that's that's him and then so there's the and I'm sure these people are younger than me so there's this whole generation of folks that like they know they know Dawn of the Dead George Romero they know the Sombrero Man cameo but they also know your films and they just never put the the, the two together yeah, which I think is cool like you 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 figure stuff out when you figure it out so it's always fun to learn. To learn so- something new. Yeah, um, and George has a cameo in Lightning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was. I mean, it's. I was. I mean, I was really fortunate uh, at that period to have such a strong group of people to be around and people to bounce ideas off of, but also, more importantly, people to show your rough cuts to that mm-hmm. weren't that weren't just going to you know say oh that's great you know that really would critique them. Oh, see that's oh so okay so then in that with that relationship you had he was he would he would give honest notes and and uh, I'm talking about R- Romero that that yeah that, that he would is. look yeah he would give yeah honest talk about yeah yeah so you'd be able to go through stuff and uh, yeah and show it, you know that and so you get you get you get feedback wow that's such a that's such a cool resource I'm, I'm talking specific resource too to have someone like Romero watch your stuff that that's really cool wow now. Because I mentioned earlier, with this kind of filmmaker relationship, did Werner Herzog ever like often reach out to you, or, oh, or was no, it? No, I mean we had that one time event. I mean this yeah. is all before emails and everything else. Sure, I, of course, I, of course. And, and I wasn't really that great on on maintaining contacts. I mean a lot of it. Mm. I mean I I could have kept writing him, but you know he was still such a star. I I felt like I'd be. You know what I mean? It just I know the feeling. No, no, yeah. I, I I understand. Yeah, so I, just I wanted, yeah, so I just sort of let it, uh, you know, uh, let it pass. It really didn't take advantage of that moment, which uh, which is like even even you know, there's like certain things when I, I look back, I didn't take advantage of. One is like the first uh, going to Sundance with uh, with Lightning. Mm-hmm. I had no idea there'd be like you get calls from Sony Studios, all these places. It, that I should have had another script or another idea ready to go. I've heard that from uh, other folks who I've, who I've in, in, in interviewed. They thought, well, 
it's 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 amazing that I'm at Sundance and people uh, have taken note and, and interest. But it, I, I I wondered, does it come from like well, not that you're not proud of it. I'm sure, you, especially a movie like, like one of my favorite yeah. movies. So I, I I would hope so. But do you sometimes feel like ah, this isn't like you know I don't know the big film that pe- people would think of is is that kind of uh se- second guessing where well my ideas are kind of weird or off the beaten path so yeah, yeah, i should yeah. do it myself and yeah yeah i did yeah i know when i got when I, when I, as i come back from the sundance i was like uh got a call from sony you know and it wasn't uh you know asking me about you know the possibility of distributing it I said, well, have you seen the film yet? And they had. And I said, well, it's not. It's not. I think was it uh, was it my life as a dog? I can't remember what came out at that time, or mm-hmm. or chocolate or something. But there was. I said, it's not. Yeah, that know. was all. Yeah, that was that was that very very late eighties period. All of those. Yeah, yeah I said. Yeah. I said, you know, it, it it doesn't quite have that kind of audience appeal. I said, it's a limited mm-hmm. audience film. Yeah. <laughs> but but the other thing is like you know you go there and uh, and you're hot for that moment. Sure, but then sure. you know, then then you know, then six months later, you know, the buzz <laughs> a year later, that type of buzz is gone, and you're back like doing it. And also at that time too is that it took almost two years to distribute a film. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're yeah. hot on the festival circuit, you hit all the festivals, and you go around and give talks uh, to really push your, you know, to push the work. There wasn't all the channels that are available today where you, uh, you know, that you could sell it to and it'd be up on Netflix or something immediately. Well, that still happens. You know, it's funny today because now that I've been going to the Toronto Film Festival for over a decade, um, I guess the New York Film Festival is a little different. But something like Toronto, where it's like hundreds of movies, you know, like there's been times where I've gone to the Toronto Film Festival in 2011. I see a movie. I don't hear about it. And then I'm on the subway platform in 2013 and I see like an ad for it. And I'm like, where did I see that? And then because two years have passed and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I saw it. A festival, and now it's it's finally coming out. It's like, wow, that was two years ago. So, I yeah, I sometimes think people don't realize that even even a movie that's considered good, even when you rush it, it still may take over a year for a, yeah. for everything to yeah, come you, out. You, you know, yeah, you really. I mean, you're making independent work. You really got to figure you're giving up probably about six years to it. You know, mm. four years, you know, raising money, developing it, shooting it, then another two years afterwards. And, and like I said, now things have changed. Uh, Actually, I wouldn't even know quite how to go about uh, uh, doing it today because in, in some ways, I think it, it, it might be a little bit harder. Like back then, the gatekeepers were always on the front end, either mm-hmm. with the financing or if you got into major festivals. Now it seems like the gatekeeping's on the back end where, okay, you've made this film, but now what do you do? You know, it didn't, you, you could raise the money to do it, so that that problem is gone but now there's so much product being made how do you get it out there how, how much money do you have to spend buying google adwords or hiring a, 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 an influencer or that type of thing you know to uh, to get to exactly you know and with all the streaming services now it seems like they're buying up so much stuff but then they just put it out like and maybe by chance you'll come across a series or so, you know what i mean like just this weekend, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Nicholas Wending Refn. I guess he's his Drive is probably the most pop, popular movie he did, but um, he has a series now on Netflix. And this weekend was its opening weekend for the show. And when you go on that main Netflix page, it's not even trending now. It's not even under the new releases. It's they they just I just knew it because I follow his work and I find that a lot. Whether it's Paramount, Hulu, Netflix, it, again, it's one of those things where it's so intimidating now. All the avenues, it's like. 
what do you do? And now something like Vimeo is becoming its own platform. I think Vimeo, for those that don't know, YouTube YouTube is, is this huge conglomerate, but Vimeo, I find, has been so much more kinder to independent filmmakers. I, they, they always seem to use that as their, what, what, whether they upload rough drafts or that's where their main pages are. Because uh, I noticed you, you, you have your uh, Vimeo page as well. Is, right. is, is that part of the reason why you use Vimeo well, over YouTube? You know, well, I have on YouTube also, but Vimeo is higher quality uh, for a while, but I think Vimeo yeah, now right. is, 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 you know, if you want to do, uh, uh, do your own sales, that type of thing, I think it's, yeah. it, it's much, it's much friendlier. And, you know, you go through YouTube and I go around and it's just as, in some of the stuff you're looking, who has the, uh, you know, the million views and this kind of mm, thing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's, there's always like, <laughs> there's always this, uh, young woman dressed in white out in the woods somewhere who's working in a garden <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you know? yeah. and, and the dress is never dirty and yeah and, and the comments are all oh, it's so beautiful this idyllic set it's amazing what you're doing that's and, so funny and all i can think about is how much camera setup was involved to get this shot that shot sure. they had to spend like three days doing this Sure. And then, and then yeah, how, how's this person actually living there i mean what what i think a lot of stuff is that media literacy is really uh, needs to be taught more in, in schools. Yeah, yeah. No, that's well. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. When if you work, if you still manage to have like a good job in a town like Braddock, you're making higher five figures, but it's they still make it out. You know, like you're in poverty or something, right. or something, something like that. But that's so, no, that's funny. That 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 description you gave is so funny because when I click through, when it's like, oh, I need something to watch. So many of the, so much of the poster art is exactly how you described. It's some kind of like horror thriller, exactly. Some woman, ghostly woman in a white dress, out in the woods, pristine condition, kind of. That's such, that, that's such an accurate, accurate description. That's that's funny. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I did know that you had a YouTube chat, but I just, it's, it's funny. I don't associate you with. YouTube. When I go to look at your stuff, I always go to Vi- uh, Vimeo. I've always been, I've always been early on that. And probably part of that is because outside of my film writing and, and interviewing, I've never been a filmmaker or wanted to be one, but some of my close friends are. So years ago, you know, I'm talking like oh, well over a decade ago, whenever they're working on a draft and they send me something, it was this like Vimeo link. And I was like, oh, what is Vimeo? And then I, now I find, I got the, the app on my phone to, and, and I like the design of it. And, and like you said, I think the quality of it is good. Whereas in YouTube, sometimes it's a little questionable. Yeah, what I, what I end up doing is like, I'll end up putting, uh, like, like I do a lot of, like if I'm filming a protest or, or, or stuff at a council meeting, I'll put those like sh- little short, like two or three minutes up on YouTube because mm-hmm. they're, it, it, it's not. I didn't. I don't want to clutter the Vimeo channel. With, sure. With, with, sure. With a lot of, uh, with, with a lot of stuff. You know. Now, in terms, of, I'm not gonna say political filmmaking because I think that's it's so vague and just a setup for something else. But in ter- in 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 the lane of films that you make, are there filmmakers that you feel are genuine, great, are not exploitive? I feel like. Instead of naming stuff that you don't like, if you could, if there's anyone who you do like right now, or of the last few years, I have to be right the second over the last decade or so, yeah. who, who who do projects that you really would put your name on or put your kind of endorsement behind. Well, I mean, there's like, uh, like I said, I mean, there's the people at Apple Shop are really, a, you know, is, is such great integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then you have uh, 
you know, Louis Messiah scribe video, mm-hmm. and uh, and the work they the work the whole organization puts out, and also Louis Messiah he worked with uh, uh, Patricia Zimmerman from Ithaca College, and they put together this amazing series called We Tell. It's mm-hmm. uh, 50 years of community media, mm-hmm. and it go, it's. You know, the earliest films are from 1971, 72, up until present time. They put these packages together. Uh, uh, one I saw was called, uh, it was about uh, work. And it was an amazing documentary done in, by the, the Black Revolutionary Party on Detroit auto workers. Mm-hmm. And they brought 16 millimeter cameras into the thing. But, but then, yeah, but then on more, you know, it's like uh, you have... Uh, you know, she just you know, the people with with New Day films, and man, oh, how could I draw a blank on her name? She just passed. Uh, oh, geez, she did American Factory. <laughs> oh man, this is terrible. Hold hold on a second, because uh, I'm Julia Reichert. Yes, Julia Reichert. Yes, yeah, Julia yes, Reichert. Yes. Yeah, Julia Reichert. Yeah, I mean, there were there. Yeah, there, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me. Like, you know, I'm pushing eighty, so it's hard for me to recall the names. Like, no, 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 right no off problem. the top, but sure, yeah, there's sure. a. I mean, I I go to, uh, I still uh, I try to hit a couple film festivals a year. We we go down to Athens, Ohio, and oh, cool. uh, and, and, and there, and they they do a really good job programming. So we so isn't all experimental. There's a lot of docs. We see a, a variety of work and seeing some really. Great stuff done on, on environmental issues and uh, that, that that have been made that aren't uh, you know that are political and are unexploitive unexplo- and, and and aren't really didactic either. I mean, so, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it's yeah I, I'm seeing less. I mean, I, you know, and, and uh, than I used to, but I still we still try to catch uh, uh, the festivals and. and I'm trying to think this uh, the most you know then there's well then of course there's a New York filmmaker which I uh, you know he, he's older than me is Manny Kirchheimer who I really admire wow okay and Manny, oh that's awesome Manny Kirchheimer he's the uh, uh, the uh, a film called The Canners mm-hmm. most recently uh, and he has these series of films that he's been making from material he shot in the 50s and 60s of New wow. York and then his uh, uh, most famous film is it, the one the most recognition is the one on the graffiti on the subway trains. Uh, uh, man, now I'm, once again, I'm drawing a blank. And he did another called We Were So Beloved, but he's, a, he's really like, right. a, it's been described as uh, New York City's sort of most under, you know, uh, unknown film documentary filmmaker, but he, man, he's in his 90s now and he's still working. Right. Making new oh, work. I'm an idiot. You're talking, I, I'm, 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 st- uh, Stations of the Elevated. Stations of the Elevated, yeah. exactly. Oh, that's the yeah. movie, well, that's the movie you invited me up to see, to see at, at right, that moment. Right, yeah, right. that's yeah, a, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 so, so, yeah so that thing, then there's a, 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 another documentary filmmaker in New York, uh, who had Mahar was actually mm-hmm. the lead in Dawn of the Dead, and that's Galen Ross. Oh wow, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so uh-huh. yeah, so there's, yeah, there, uh, and for what I, what's, to me, it's interesting with some of the, you know, what's changed. Uh, like I, I recently rewatched Seventeen by Joel DeMott and Jeff Krines, mm-hmm. and it was you know set in Muncie, Indiana, uh, as part of a, 
uh, the Middletown series that uh, PBS produced in the 70s. And mm-hmm. I had worked on one of them, and so I went back and looked at it. You know, the film like had a, like a 20 or 30 to 1 shooting ratio, which uh-huh. as filmmakers at the time we thought was high, but now you look at these films being made, like Hale County, mm-hmm. and it had a 1,000 to 1 oh, shooting yeah. ratio. I mean, that's... Wow. Yeah, you start uh, getting into it. And it's, it's, it's also interesting to watch like something that Hale County does just a sort of like... Uh, a little slice of life of just you know these little vignettes that come up and it's uh, yeah so there's you know I keep watching stuff seeing like different trends of, of filmmaking and with the digital people are shooting a lot more mm-hmm. but also the framing is different because of that uh, the 16 by 9 frame yeah you see less close ups and more of that uh, uh, the wide shots you know it, it's so funny because now I'm thinking back to you know uh Manfred Kirschheimer, when at the after party at that MoMA event, you know, I, I, I spoke to him for a second, but I got, you know, he, he like, like you had said, he's a little older and it was that there was like music playing it was a little yeah. loud. So I, I, I felt like I was bugging him at a certain point, but I've always wondered if he was aware that like that particular film stations, the elevated, it's so associated with hip hop culture. And it's one of the few films made by someone who is technically outside of hip hop culture that's like embraced as like an official. You know, there's movies like Wild Style, Style Wars, right. stuff like that. And Stations of the Elevated is one of the films that's mentioned alongside it. And it, it's, um, yeah, it's such a great. And and I think it's funny because I think a lot of folks in the culture of hip hop who fought specifically the element of graffiti aren't even aware that that film, you know, was made by who it was made by. But it's just. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I mean, because yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, because the film is just a, it's a visual. Uh, yeah, which is uh, jazz. It's just jazz, jazz music and, and, jazz and, and, and just visual, imagery. Yeah, with, yeah, and his so I know what he was. Uh, I, I, I think like when I talked to Manny years ago, one of his uh, things about the film was that he was looking at he, he looked at the hip the the, the graffiti as predicting the future of of almost like all the dissonance that was taking place in in jazz in the 50s was was predicting what was going to happen in the 60s mm. in terms of uh, of civil unrest so he thought yeah. the same thing with the graffiti then what you know then what happened in, uh, later yeah. on yeah i mean it, it's so interesting how graffiti in itself is this interesting radical art because it's it's really like it's moving canvases like quite li- literally you're going through there's trains that go from you know Manhattan, Queens, uh, through Brooklyn, or Manhattan, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. So through all of New York City, you see these really great pieces of art. And it, if anything, at at its core, it's about just people in a good way wanting attention. It's like they may come from an area where nobody knows who they are, but now all over New York City and to some degree all over the world, you see your name, and your name is kind of synonymous, you know, with yeah on these trains. And it's always been fascinating too that like for those of you listening who aren't in the know, like real graffiti artists would never like paint on the side of like the Guggenheim or they would never paint on the side of the Vatican because people already know it, it's always about like a blank canvas that isn't already synonymous with art you know in, in, in itself so for those of you who haven't seen Stations They Elevated you, you, you really should I think I mean half my listeners probably aren't into hip hop culture so they already know the, you know that film but at the same time if you haven't seen it please it, it, it's such a great great film yeah you know? and there is a, I, I found out like for struggles in steel, there have been some artists that have been uh, sampling uh, some of the interviews, and you, really, yeah, and using it within the within their work. Yeah, I don't know who, but someone had told me that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, so, it makes sense. I, you know, I, and again, I don't want to keep you too long. Before, I, but I, I want so struggles in steel specifically, 
and it also echoes in some of your other films as well. You know, it's 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 interesting because this is just the way my mind works as as a black person. When you see a black person on film, especially in the lane of independent or dare I say, I'm using air quote art house films, your antenna goes up a little bit. And you know, it's interesting too because I, you've never been associated with someone like, oh, this is a film. It focuses on black people, but the guy who made it isn't black, but it's authentic. Um, has that ever been like anything that you know that's come up to like? You know what I mean? Like, well, I'm I'm documenting people that don't necessarily look, look like me. And by the way, it's all it's never, it's always great and authentic. You know, you know, like I said. Um, whereas other times, I find filmmakers who aren't of it's not even just black or white, just aren't of a race, and they document a race or ethnicity or culture that isn't theirs. It comes off a little fake. Whereas everything you do is incredibly real, as cliche as that may sound. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, for struggles, I mean, it's really Ray Henderson. I mean. And right. Then, and what we did, we, we went out the first week and shot interviews, and the, and the, the uh, crew was a mixed crew. Mm-hmm. And so Ray called everybody we interviewed up and asked everybody if they'd be more comfortable as an all-black crew. Right. Uh, and, and they said it didn't, uh, it didn't matter. Uh, yeah. But what I was make sure I would do, Ray would always be in the forefront. The camera person was sometimes Billy Jackson or John Rice or John Bick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes it was, it was white, sometimes black. But Wayne Gaines did the audio. And it's always had the audio person uh, who's African-American because it, it, the cameras at that time were so big, mm-hmm. it, the, the person shooting was practically hidden by the camera, yeah. where the audio person was right there putting on the mic with the boom, just right in front of the person. So I made sure whoever was doing the audio was a person of color. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's a, yeah, and, uh, and Wayne and I are still we're working on some other project. We were working on a uh, a project that, that that stalled out because of COVID. Uh, mm. That uh, was sort of interesting. In what happened to the grandchildren of these steel workers? Mm-hmm. You know, oh wow, that's really oh wow, yeah. Yeah, so you know, so so that's that was COVID's been put on hold, and then of course we all aged. I I feel like aging two years during COVID is almost like aging like five years or something. You know, I was just saying so many things. I I got laid off from a job and I was unemployed for the first time ever in my life for like half a year. And then I got a job and I didn't like it and I left. We had a son. Like so many things happened. And I was was just telling my wife and I was like, this happened in two years? You know what I mean? It just feels like six, seven years. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I feel like I've aged six, six, seven years right. in that period. So we're sort of trying to get back up. And, and because both of us are not young, we know we still like really uh, trying to play it safe too with uh, sure. with COVID. Sure. Well, that's actually – so no, we've worked our way to COVID, which is essentially present day. What Are there any current projects – that that I could have a link to also to put in the, in in with this post and, yeah, and that you want to let, let people know. I'll, I'll post them up on Vimeo. I mean, I did do a, uh, I, I think I have the whole film. I did do a COVID film where uh, mm-hmm. where it was just in a house I shot out of my windows for, you know, mm-hmm. for for a year's time. Right. And, and dealing with COVID statistics, yeah. uh, uh, right now I'm, uh, I'm working with the, the Carnegie Museum of Art there in Pittsburgh. They want to revise their film program, so I. Uh, program a series of films that will take place starting in uh, in May and going into uh, 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 December, mm-hmm. and the themes will be on you know workplace and politics. And um, it's going to first the series is going to start off with a film that was made uh, about Sally Dixon, a documentary that was made on her, and she 
was headed the film program at, and started it at the Carnegie. Then a second part of the second in that series will be, uh, I'm calling it the Rust Belt Connection. Uh, mm -hmm. f filmmakers from Buffalo and Pittsburgh who were experimental filmmakers in the 70s. And you had this sort of connection between the two because in Buffalo there was a, the Squeaky Wheel and also a, the other organization that in the Buffalo State where you had all the experimental filmmakers uh, were at, at that time. Then after that, I'm programming a whole series of uh, uh, where I'm going to show one of the uh, Apple Shop, some Apple Shop films uh, dealing with extraction, the Buffalo Creek uh, flood disaster that happened and a couple other Apple Shop films and this, this retail series about work. Uh, then, then we're going to program Romero's Martin as a sense of place in June. So awesome. Then, yeah, then uh, the, uh, the 17, Hale County, uh, and, and a couple other films for, uh, to, to close out that series. But I'm also working on, a, they commissioned me to do a short piece. What I've been doing is going through some short films that I made, and I've been not re-editing them, but re-going re, re through what my thoughts were. Because now, you know, the images are there, but like I'm rereading those images. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. like you, you read a film from, you know, that was made 30 years ago. And, and there's this short film that started off called uh, uh, Homage to a Mill Town. Then I used the same material to make a, a sh uh, the same shots, the same length, a film called The Fall. Now I'm going to make a third piece on that. And that'll be at the Carnegie. But I'm also working on a, a film which is, is about my mother. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a difficult one because it's one, again, you know, we talk about, I mean, there's no drama. There's, you know, she didn't beat me as a kid. She wasn't, an <laughs> right, right. She, she, you know, she, she was a great mother. So how do you make a film you know, about, a, yeah, about yeah. a person where there's, you know, she never had an affair with anybody. There's Isn't no that funny? It's, it's almost now, a, it's almost a struggle or there's almost drama attached to having good parents are having like a good yeah, upbringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, had great, I had great parents, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. it was like, I mean, I, I wasn't a great son, but I had great parents. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so we're going through this material. And right, right now I have a working uh, title called uh, An Unremarkable Life, where then I'll have a slash going across the un, you know. And it'll mm -hmm. be about her, uh, you know, migrating from, from Italy, playing around with stuff. But I really have to look for little small details of her life yeah. to give it this broader meaning yeah I mean, it's a real it's, it's difficult when there's when there's, when there's no, no dramatic structure sure sure i well it's it all sounds great i'm not just saying this because you're here but everything you do is great i mean the reason i'm, I'm talking to you is because you're i'm such a fan of yours and, and and the films you made are so great so i i appreciate you taking the time out of day to do this and I, and I do um, have some, yeah i do have so some great. new ones new ones up there's one uh that's there I'll put them up on, I think I don't have a Vimeo or YouTube. One is called mm -hmm. uh, uh, Making Super Setter with uh, Dom and the guys. And uh, mm -hmm. then it's like another one, a cousin of mine cooking. Yeah, yeah, I missed, here's another thing where my whole career could have been different. Years ago, it was, uh, I, you know, it was up in New York and showing lightning. And I ran into a next student who, uh, who was, it, it was like in the 90s, who was working for the Travel Channel. Wow. I, said, I said, I have an idea. I'd like to just uh, go around Italy with my relatives and show, have a cooking show. I mean, that's <laughs> and, and I, I never followed up on that idea. 
Right. And so, for, I mean, a guy you mentioned earlier, I mean, Stan, Stanley Tucci, Tucci yeah. has a whole other yeah. separate career outside of his acting doing all of that. So, it's yeah. fun. wow, that's funny. <laughs> this was so great, Tony. I, I really appreciate well, you doing you. this. Thank you. Yes, I hope and to see you uh, in New York when we get back up there. I was just gonna say, please. Uh, I hope I'm one of the first pe- people you yeah. contact when you're in New- whatever you're showing, screening. I'll, I'll be there to to support absolutely.